Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times is what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time as we stand on the brink of a new football season, is there an alternative to the global financial and political interests that now dominate the national sport? There are clubs like Newcastle United, owned by the oil state of Saudi Arabia, keen to greenwash its reputation desperate to promote its sporting credentials rather than discuss its human rights abuses. Or Manchester United, leveraged to the hilt by US owners the Glazer family, have somehow managed to get ordinary supporters to pay the interest costs on their investment. The Glazers, already billionaires, now stand to benefit further from an auction between rival bidders for the club. Lower down the divisions, directors with eyes on the financial prize of a place in the Premier League are taking huge financial risks to get there. So much so that since the league was created in 1992, 64 clubs have gone into administration and some such as Berry and Macclesfield folded altogether. The government is promising an independent regulator to curb the worst excesses of the sport. But is there another way of running football altogether? We'll be hearing from Niall Cooper, the CEO of Fair Game, which wants to reward clubs who are run sustainably. Before we hear from Niall, a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. That's our brilliant monthly newspaper, which combines the best of our online offerings with content that you can't read anywhere else. Get details about subscriptions over at bylinetimes.com. That's at bylinetimes.com. Welcome then to Niall Cooper. And Niall, I think it's probably just worth reflecting on the fact that although you're now CEO of Fair Game, this journey for you starts as a supporter of Wimbledon Football Club, who in the 1980s were a fantastic footballing success story rising from non-league football to the Premier League. Yeah, totally, Adrian. That's exactly where my journey began. All those glorious moments of soaring up through the leagues and all that. But obviously, as you well know, the story of Wimbledon did turn somewhat sour. You know, and that's kind of the inspiration really behind where Fair Game comes from and where it began. Because it's about looking at the clubs that go into crisis, the clubs that weren't run well, and looking at how we can try and create a better future that means what happened to my club and what happens to other clubs like Bury and Macclesfield and you know nowadays South End, Wigan and Reading and, and the list unfortunately is very long. Make sure that doesn't happen again. And that's really where we've got to with the fair game index. And in Wimbledon's case, the club was being run unsustainably and many supporters would have accepted perhaps that just as the club climbed the divisions, perhaps it might have tumbled back down a division or two. But you had owners who were desperate to sustain it at that level, racked up big debts with the result that the club left its home, Plough Lane in Wimbledon, which was its traditional home because Changes in safety legislation meant that it had to become all seated. They said they couldn't afford to do that. The club moved for a time to Selhurst Park, Crystal Palace's home in South London, but was then in what many fans regard as a pretty shameful and shabby episode, was then carted lock, stock and barrel 60 miles north to Milton Keynes. Yeah, all of that was just a horrendous experience. And that whole lack of consultation or understanding about what a football club is was really at the centre of it. 
So you talk about it not being run sustainably. You know, the clubs that are run sustainably are ones that really look at their community, look at trying to embed their whole culture within it, because that's what ultimately brings people together. You know, what gets people through the turnstile is that connection between fan and community and club and community. And that's really what was missing in the times of Wimbledon. You know, you don't move a club from Wimbledon to Sellers Park to start off with, and you certainly don't then allow it to be moved 60 miles north. I mean, that is not what football clubs have really been built on over all these histories and all that time. And that's a real flaw in the sustainable model of football. You know, it needs to be looking at that. You need to do that. And, you know, our research at Fair Game now has really shown that. But for me as a fan growing up, it was heartbreaking. I remember very vividly the moment the news came through that our belief position was going to be taken and moved to a town in Buckinghamshire. I mean, that was just absolutely appalling. And it, it really um, shook me to the core. You know, that led to the journey of where I am now. And we're familiar these days with clubs, perhaps the bigger clubs like Manchester United, having global fan bases and indeed fan bases around the UK. But for most professional football clubs, even clubs of pretty good standing in the Premier League in this country, that connection with their local community, that tie with a particular area is intrinsically part of their identity. The two are indivisible. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you you can look at Brentford or Luton, both those clubs now in the Premier League, and that's at the heart of both of those clubs' models. What makes Luton special? What makes Brentford special? And in a lot of cases, it's the football club being that beacon, the bit that brings it all together. And the owners and the staff of both of those clubs totally get it. And that's why they've done really well in the index, you know, because that's where their heart is. That's where their belief is. That's what makes football special. And those two clubs are really great examples of when it's done right. And we should say that Wimbledon is a success story because with the move to Milton Keynes, you and other supporters of the club set up your own new club, AFC Wimbledon. And having been told that there was no future for you in the borough of Merton, nearly 30 years after the club was moved away from Plough Lane, you now have a brand new stadium just a couple of hundred yards away from where you used to play. This time, though, the club is owned by the supporters, by Supporters Trust, and you've come out top in Fair Games Sustainability Index as the best-run club. So what exactly does being the best-run club, according to the Fair Game Index, entail? The index is based on four big criteria, and it's really important to mention that the people who judge the criteria are the leading experts in each of those fields. So on financial sustainability, the people doing that are some of the best financial wizards, if you like, of looking at football's finances from places like Sheffield Hallam University and Dunbria and Portsmouth Universities. They're the ones who've really done the analysis on that. You've then looked at good governance, which has been helped by things like the ethical consumer, responsible, again, really well-known names. All these sort of people have come together to judge it, and that's what makes it so special. But when you talk about financial sustainability, which is the major part of the index, it really comes down to a couple of very basic things. Is a club technically solvent? Is a club paying less than it earns on players' wages? Two really core 
simple things that you'd have thought would be absolutely normal would be expected to be the case across the board in any other sector or industry. But in football, it's a rarity. The UEFA recommended maximum, that's the maximum amount that you're supposed to spend on players' wages as a proportion of your revenue, is 70%. In our top 92 clubs, that's 90% is the average. So there is a load of clubs that are just not doing things right. And then when it comes to technical solvency, 44% of clubs in that 92 are technically insolvent. There's something really fundamentally wrong within the game. And Wimbledon is a club that will never, given its history, put the financial of the club up for risk. You know, that's not what we're about. And there are a number of clubs that are the same. And yet the pressure remains to overspend because that's the norm. So we need to look at a whole new structure that starts rewarding well-run clubs, clubs that don't put the financial security of their club at risk. And that's why Wimbledon comes out so well, because that's what it's built on. And that's why clubs like Lincoln or Carlisle or Plymouth do so well, because that's also their ethos. But they are not getting the kind of benefit for that. And that's really, I think, we need to look at trying to do that to change the culture of how football operates. Otherwise, there's going to be that heartache that, you know, I suffered as a youngster with Wimbledon or Bury or Macclesfield or South End fans are worrying about right now or Reading fans or Wigan fans. You know, we need to end that culture of unsustainability that is rife within football. And people say, perhaps, well, football clubs never really go out of business. If they go into administration, there's usually somebody else there to pick up the pieces and buy them. But in the cases of Bury and Macclesfield, we did have football clubs that went bust, that ceased to exist. Now, of course, football being football, there will be people who will create a club in Bury, create a club in Macclesfield. We fear at the moment, as you say, for the future of Southend United. But those particular institutions, Bury and Macclesfield, stopped existing. And even when clubs go into administration, even if they are saved, there are losers. There are Usually smaller local businesses, perhaps the people who make the pies, perhaps the people who print the programmes, who end up having to write off their debts. And these are the the hidden victims, as it were, of a football club going into administration. Yeah, exactly. I think that's the one thing that people forget. There is that common consensus, oh, football, they'll be saved. But with those 64 instances of administration since the start of the Premier League, the people that suffered like you say, was the local baker, the local printer, the plumber. And when you're talking about the amount of money they're owed to buy from club, then that's enough to put those out of business. You know, that's it. They fold, they go, they disappear. And they are community businesses. So a club going into administration has a huge non-effect to the community that which it operates in. So you should not be allowing that kind of culture to exist. We need to really change that because it isn't, some sort of harmless incident when a club goes into administration. It is devastating for that community for which it operates in. We really need to realise that. And that's that bit that needs to change. You know, we need to incentivise clubs to be well run, to make sure that the businesses within that community don't suffer. It's really that simple. You know, it's about showing respect to the community areas that we've got and to having a more holistic view about what football's role really is in society. And it's much deeper than one business owner having a bit of a plaything and a bit of a gamble with the existence of a football club. 
And at the moment, the incentives are the other way round, aren't they? There is an incentive to risk, to take a gamble and to reach the top level because since the Premier League was created in 1992 as a, effectively a breakaway league, the rewards for being in the Premier League are wholly disproportionate to any other part of the game. So you get into the Premier League and you have hit the jackpot financially, not only for the season or two seasons, perhaps, that you might be in the Premier League if you're a smaller club, but then for the following seasons, you get what are called parachute payments to help sustain you in lower divisions. So you're desperate to get to that level. You have a degree of wealth simply by being in the Premier League that is unobtainable anywhere else within the football pyramid. If you're in League One or League Two, you want to get to the championship because, again, the rewards of being in the championship are disproportionately greater than they are for League One or League Two. So the reward is weighted towards trying to progress up the football pyramid, taking a risk in order for a greater financial gain. And what you're trying to do is turn that on its head, say, look, the Premier League makes a lot of money. Let's take the money that is currently distributed down the pyramid based purely on league position at the moment. And instead of basing it on league position, which incentivizes risk, let's base it on how well run these clubs are. So instead of incentivizing risk, we're incentivizing sustainability. Yeah, it's exactly that. When you talk about the championship, that is a division that I would call the basket case division because the incentive is to gamble. It's absolutely no surprise that that division is the one that comes out worst on the fair game index. And the average score of sustainability in, in that particular division is 38%. And that's out of a mark of 100. So that's pretty poor. In old money, that's like an F, isn't it? So that's something that we need to look at changing. We need to look at rewarding well-run clubs and making sure that that is the incentive. You can still win the league or whatever, and you can still do that. And that's great because what happens there is that's the revenue that comes through from success on the pitch that a well-run club can actually use to invest even further and make the club even more successful and more sustainable longer term. That's what comes through with success on the pitch. But to get to that place in the first place, you need to really have success off the pitch because that's what makes your club there for the long haul. That's what makes sure your club is secure. And that's what's got to come first. And at the moment, as you say, the whole way the game's weighted is the other way around. It's about saying, well, I might be in really serious financial trouble, but if I throw all my remaining eggs in this one direction, I might might just, just make it to that top level and chase that siren call. And the reality with that is, there's only a certain amount of clubs that can get that start level. There's a hell of a lot that don't. And the reality is most clubs don't make it. And most clubs are left in financial peril because of that culture of gambling. And we need to end that culture. Otherwise, the game is just going to end up repeated mistakes. We'll see the more Southends, the more Wiggins, the more Reddings, the more Barrys, the more Macclesfields. And we can go on and on and on. I, I know, Adrian, you could probably name another 20, 30 clubs that are in that same boat. Isn't one of the difficulties that we, as supporters, demand owners who spend? If the team isn't performing very well on the pitch, we say, come on, sign a new centre-forward, sign a new goalkeeper or whatever. So this culture change 
that you're talking about in football isn't just about the owners. It's about us as supporters as well, accepting that this is not a game where we simply splash the cash to solve a particular problem. The problem is the current culture of gambling goes down to the supporter as well. So the supporter also starts feeling exactly the same with what pressure the owners are under, because that's what the owners are always going to chase. If we start seeing a financial flow that rewards well-run clubs, that will change that direction of people going, well, actually, look, I've got my club. My club is sustainable. My club is growing for the long term, and it will be beneficial for the club not just now, but for the future. And that actually will help with success on the pitch. But that has to be that long-term approach that we need to go to. Otherwise, we're just gambling constantly and it's not sustainable. That's where the change needs to happen. And it will take a while. But nowadays, we've got fans that go, look, brilliant. I came top of the Deloitte table and my club's like this amount of money and so on and on the rich table. And that's seen as a success. What we should be striving towards is that clubs come top of the fair game index and that's seen as a real achievement because it's saying this club is moving in the right direction. If I was an investor, somebody looking where football should be going and which clubs to invest in, I'd take a good look at the fair game index and say that's your safest place to put your money. Yeah, the Deloitte index is published by the accountancy firm Deloitte every year and it shows how wealthy clubs are. But of course, For most clubs, almost entirely reliant on being in the Premier League, those clubs which might appear in the top 20 or 30 globally as wealthy clubs stop being in the top 20 or 30 globally as soon as they drop out of the Premier League. So it's uh, it's sort of slightly artificially inflated by the Premier League. But the Premier League exists, Niall, and it does make incredible amounts of money for English football and it does therefore attract these global investors whether from Saudi Arabia, Abu Dhabi in the case of Manchester City, perhaps Qatar in the case of Manchester United. We see owners coming now increasingly from the United States. We've had a raft of Chinese owners as well. So how do we deal with that? Is there any suggestion in the fair game index that that kind of transnational ownership of football clubs should end or should be limited? I think there's an element about what is the reason for that person becoming an owner of a football club? Why are they investing? What are they looking for? If it is to create a sustainable football club and to create a club that actually will thrive and survive if they were to walk away, then for fair game, that's not an issue. But that's a long-term goal. That's a way of looking at it. The question has to be asked about whether some of these new investors into football have that in mind. And that's always going to be the doubt. So we need to have a look at that. So when it comes to financial sustainability, the key is, is this club committed to having players' wages revenue ratio that is actually sustainable? Is this a club that actually can pay all the credits and debt that they've got assigned for the next three, four years. Now, actually, do they have the reserves to cover all their contracts? If they do, and if that's set aside for the next three years, then fine. But that's not always the case. Those are the measures that need to be championed and central to any independent regulator. And those are the ones that we've used in the Fair Game Index to judge financial sustainability. So if those owners do come in and they are like that, uh, that's not to be sniffed at. 
Of course, there's an element about ethics that comes into it as well. I think we need to think about who do we want to see actually owning our football clubs, because ultimately those are the role models of today's society. And we need to be careful about that as well. I think those two parts of it are really important when we start looking at a proper review of what an owner and director should be and having for once fit and proper directors, owners and directors test, which it certainly isn't at this moment in time. And we do have the promise of an independent regulator. I know from conversations that I've had privately with you, you're quite bullish about the prospect of an independent regulator actually happening. I've been a little bit more sceptical, but you think that the government will bring in an independent regulator. How closely do you think that regulator will align with the values of the Fair Game Index? Damn, this is our battle now. I think it will be quite close. My sense at the moment is that the regulator is on course for being in place for the 24-25 season, or at least some part during that. When you look at the parameters of what the regulator is supposed to look after from the white paper, then three of the four of the indexes that we've used are part of that, financial sustainability, good governance and fan engagement. And we suspect equality standards will come back into play for that as well. And that's the reason we did the Fair Game Index. It's based purely on what football should be looking to regulate and should be looking to um, keep an eye on. So I think there will be a very good synergy between the Fair Game Index and what the regulator looks at. And the regulator is going to be introducing a state of play survey for football. And our conversations with the government really are making sure that our index provides the best basis and the best starting point for that survey. That's really where we think we want to get to. And we are firmly committed to a case of constant improvement on our index to get to a place where it is considered to be the best judge of how football is being well run. Certainly, we have produced the most comprehensive survey of football that's ever been produced. And we're really proud of that. And we want the government to take that on board and and hopefully use that as its benchmark for football. One of the incentives that I've mentioned for getting into the Premier League is that even if you only stay there for a season or two, you do get what are called parachute payments. So if you drop into the championship or even below, you are guaranteed a significant level of income for three years after being in the Premier League. And I've spoken to people who help design parachute payments and they believe that they're a good thing because it means that when you get to the Premier League you can attract players who'll be paid very good wages you can do so fairly confident in the knowledge that even if you're not quite good enough and you do get relegated you can make that financial commitment and that if you withdrew parachute payments clubs would be more conservative in their spending that in turn would make their team less attractive to watch to a global audience and so you'd actually damage the Premier League brand which is generating so much of the money that we're talking about. Yeah I kind of seriously dispute that. I think there's a couple of things that we need to address here. One of which is the parachute payments benefit five or six clubs a year. Uh, It can go up to eight or nine. What we're looking at is a redistribution model that rewards well-run clubs and that will benefit 144 clubs. You know, one parachute payment at the moment, which is around £45 million a year, is more than the Premier League currently give to all the clubs of League One, 
League Two, the National League, the National League North, the National League South put together, that's got to be wrong. So, you know, we shouldn't just think about how the parachute payments benefit these small amount of clubs. We should think about how that money could be used to benefit the wider ecosystem of football. And when you talk about how that money is spent at a lower league club, it goes on stadium infrastructure, it goes on academies, it goes on community programs, largely doesn't go on players' wages. And those three elements, if we have a proper well-run system, will be transformational for all of those communities. So I think that's a real big fundamental difference that can happen with parachute payments. That's where I think it should go. So I think we need to move away from this idea that parachute payments are fantastic. Whether it damages the Premier League, I'd dispute that as well. Because if the abolition of parachute payments would mean that the well-run club in the championship can get to the Premier League, and the well-run club that gets to the Premier League would then be looking at, right, okay, well, I haven't got parachute payments to fall back on. So I will look at using the wealth I've got from the Premier League and invest it properly in making sure that my club is sustainable for the long term. That means the clubs that go up will be the ones that actually aren't basket cases necessarily or aren't so dependent on their business model being dependent on parachute payments. It makes it a much more equitable and competitive championship, which means the clubs that thrive are the ones that are well run and they're potentially the ones that will have that ability to thrive in the Premier League. It'll actually make the system fairer, better and stronger because you'll have more clubs being able to compete rather than the Premier League effectively being what it is now, 26 clubs with six clubs that are on a sabbatical in the championship. That's where we need to change. Like Luton are a complete one-off and it's brilliant that Luton have made it and I really hope they thrive. But there should be opportunities for more clubs like Luton to make it into the Premier League. And at the moment, that's a really difficult door to push open if you're not a receipt of a parachute payment. Luton are a fan-owned club, a supporters' trust-run club, as are Wimbledon. Just worth pointing out that not all of the clubs who do well in your fair game index are fan-owned. They're not all clubs who, with respect to Wimbledon, have been struggling at the bottom of League Two. Luton are an example of that. But Brentford are a great example, aren't they, of a club who are not fan-owned, but who are still run sustainably. It can be done even under a, as it were, a traditional investor-led football model. Exactly. There are well-run clubs out there. And what we're really keen to do is to champion those ones, to make sure that that is seen as the model and that is the way forward. As well as Brentford, two of the other clubs were Carlisle and Plymouth, who both got promoted this season in Leighton Orient. They're all clubs that have done well in the fair game index. So there is that ability to do that. And you'd hope that the fair game index will show you that the well-run clubs can thrive and can succeed. I mean, Brentford, great example, because they've looked at it. They did get equity from an owner, but they used it in the correct way. They've built a brand new stadium. Their club is top, is brilliantly well on the equality standards measure. They do really well on fan engagement because they know that those two strands are areas which will make sure that that club thrives in the area that it operates within. And that's where I think we should be looking at. Brilliant, well done to Brentford. And that's what the rest of the Premier League should be looking at with kind of green eyes, thinking, right, that's where we should be. Not necessarily some of the other clubs in the Premier League that massively overspend and don't make a profit. Great to speak to you, Niall. Thank you. If people want to check out more about the Fair Game Index, more about what you're talking about, they can head over to your website, fairgameuk.org. 
That's fairgameuk.org. You've been listening to the Byline Times podcast produced in Birmingham by me, Adrian Goldberg, and by Harvey White, funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. Do think about taking out a subscription over at bylinetimes.com. And if you have already done so, thank you very much indeed. This is a We Bring Audio production for the Byline Times. Thank you very much. We'll see you again soon. Cheers now. Bye-bye.